0: Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and today I'm joined by Samina Mustafa, Democratic candidate for Congress in Illinois' fifth. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. So for starters, could you tell us about your background and what brought you to a run for Congress?
1: Yeah, so I have lived in the district for over 30 years. I, like a lot of people on November 8, 2016, saw the screen go from blue to red and was active in my community and and approached that day with some fear because I was worried that Hillary was going to lose. And when what I feared came to pass, I realized that it wasn't just a failure of, of humanity, it was a failure of leadership. And it was up to me not to point the finger and say, why doesn't someone do something about it? It was up to me to do something about it. And when I looked around and started looking at My electeds and where the issues I cared about were most affected and who was representing me in that area, I decided that we needed new representation in Washington, and I decided to run for Congress.
0: Your incumbent is a Democrat, Mike Quigley. Why challenge him? He only votes in line with Trump 21% of the time. Could you tell us what's so bad about him and what makes you better?
1: Yeah. So actually, he, um, on some really key votes has voted in a way that's really, I think, harmful, not only to this district, but the con- to the country. Um, there were a couple of votes where he actually was, he actually ranked as the one, one of the most conservative Democrats in the House. Um, two of the, the really, um, troublesome votes were his vote on the National Defense Authorization Act, which gave Trump billions more military spending than he even requested. And the second one was the FISA 702 reauthorization. He was actually ranked the 10th most conservative Democrat in the House after that vote. And that's where he's giving Trump the ability to spy on Americans without a warrant. The ACLU and 40 other civil rights groups were fighting that, and he voted for it. And in general, his votes on things like choice and LGBTQ issues are fine. When it comes to economic issues and national security issues, he is very much uh, to the right of the district and, and frankly, um, not aligned with my values or the voters of the district. So could you
0: tell us about what those values are and what you would want an alternative to these security bills he supported?
1: Right. So when you're voting uh, with, a, with a president like Trump and you give him record military spending. You're signaling that you're ready to go to war. Mike Wigley has described himself as a hawk and has voted pretty consistently. I think the last vote he took, he actually was a rare uh, no vote to a, a Department of Defense appropriations bill. And I think it's because we're paying attention and we're calling him out on this. But he has consistently voted for increased military spending. And then if you look at his his funding, his donors, he gets, he's gotten millions of dollars from corporate PACs and special interests from defense contractors. And he's voted with their interests in mind. What that means is that there's billions of dollars going to military spending that could be spent on other things like education, healthcare, the environment. And when I've shared these votes with voters in the district. And just to give you some context, I know that you obviously are talking to people all over the country. This is a on the Koch political index. It's a D plus 20. It's There's only been one Republican in the last hundred years. This is a district that whoever wins a primary is going to win the general in terms of the Democratic primary. And so when people find out that he's voting with Trump on things like military spending and spying, people are shocked. And then they're even further shocked that he's getting so much money from corporate PACs. The other issues that people are, are concerned about are things like Medicare for All. He's not co-sponsored that bill and historically has been more conservative on economic issues. Most recently, he voted for the Mortgage Choice Act with Republicans, which actually makes it easier for um, title insurance companies and the mortgage industry to charge consumers more. His membership, he doesn't have a membership in the Progressive Caucus. He's actually part of what's known as the New Democrats. And they're a group that is against regulation, financial regulation, um, and tends to side with Republicans on economic issues. This is a district that's progressive. It went for Bernie Sanders in the 2016 presidential primary. He hasn't supported an expansion of Social Security, which actually another member of the Illinois de- delegation proposed. On these points, people are, are wanting someone who is going to be on their side. On some of the other issues, like immigration, he generally does a good job, but then they're surprised that he doesn't support. There's, there was a, a, a very highly publicized case here in Illinois, Miguel Perez Jr., a veteran who was being deported. Mike Willie has had eight opportunities to co-sponsor bills to uh, provide a path to citizenship and, and uh, return to deported veterans, and he hasn't co-sponsored those things. So these are all, again, issues where he hasn't shown leadership or he's opposed to the values of the district.
0: So speaking of immigration, could you tell us about your positions and how they're different from the incumbent?
1: Yeah. So there's um, on this, the point of the um, deported veterans, that's one. And there's the other piece, which is on ICE and the Customs and Border Control uh, Patrol. Um, there is a bill that's calling for accountability and body cameras um, for uh, those officers. And Mike Quigley tends to side with police and law enforcement. He voted with um, uh, the Republicans on a bill called the Thin Blue Line Act, which imposed poses harsher penalties on those who kill police officers. He tends to be more um, a, a little bit more militaristic, again, hawkish, and tends to side against people of color and immigrants on these very key votes. Keeping with the immigration theme, there's another bill called the, the Sensitive Locations Act, where people who are undocumented, if they're at a church or a school that ICE is kept from, um, their their location isn't going to be revealed, then he hasn't co-sponsored that bill. Those are opportunities to say, I stand with the undocumented. And I've worked with uh, organizations locally here in Chicago who travel to D.C. all the time, and have they've felt that he has fallen short on this issue. As you may
0: know, recently the proposal to abolish ICE has gained a lot of steam on the left, with more and more Democratic congressional candidates coming out in support. Do you support abolishing ICE?
1: Yes, I do believe that we this is a this is a an agency that right now because I was just reading an article today about this and I'm I, I was there was a, a young child that's being that's been ripped from um, it's mother's arms, and I'm just—it's outrageous what ICE is doing. Um, There's—it's—it's it's cruel. It's there we're creating essentially concentration camps, and there's sexual abuse or sexual assault. Um, you're keeping families apart. There isn't any accountability right now in ICE, and we—we we existed for many years without ICE <laughs> as a, an agency. And what I think is—is is happened is that we have this militarization of our immigration um, enforcement, and it's completely unjust. We don't have a humane immigration system right now.
0: So what would a humane immigration system look like in your eyes, and how would you fight
1: for that in Congress? One, we need to protect the dreamers. We need to provide them with a path to citizenship. But that's, you know, one subset of the undocumented. Um, There's 11 million undocumented Americans. And all the sort of mythology that, you know, Trump and the GOP are creating around immigrants um, is offensive and unacceptable and untrue. Those um, individuals are the best of our country. As someone who came here as the daughter of immigrants, my parents came here at a time when there was, it was a welcoming environment, when being a Muslim immigrant wasn't a scary thing. There was, there was no travel ban for people like my parents who had uh, skills, who engineers, physicians. So I don't necessarily want it also be a transactional thing that we only want certain types of immigrants. We should also be welcoming of refugees. It's, there's a humanitarian crisis going on right now in several countries, some of them because of our military actions. And we should be accommodating those individuals because it's, what's happening right now is, is tragic. And we can do something about it. We can accommodate them.
0: I'm really glad to hear you say that. I think it's really important to recognize that we shouldn't just be prioritizing immigrants based on how many boxes they check off to how useful they might be to our society. Switching gear a little bit, you managed a Planned Parenthood clinic. Could you tell us about that experience?
1: Yeah, so I managed them. I actually, like a lot of people, sought out services at Planned Parenthood. That's how I found out about the job. I didn't have insurance. I was so impressed and felt so understood and welcomed in that environment and immediately said, well, I I was actually temping at the time and I thought this would be a great environment to be in. And I was a pro-choice advocate and it was an exciting opportunity for me to, to live my values. I ended up managing a Planned Parenthood on the west side of Chicago and the patients that I typically saw were aged uh, 15 to 18 young black women. And the clinic that I worked at was a Title X federally funded clinic. So when people talk about defunding Planned Parenthood, it would have been one of my clinics. And so we, we provided care on a sliding scale. We took Medicaid, and we were, in many cases, the only safe confidential, professional health care they had access to. We were um, a a resource for education, for counseling. We had a counselor there a couple of days a week. But I know that, you know, this was um, about 20 years ago and we didn't have the language around sexual assault to the level that we have today or even the issues around gender and sexual identity and and orientation. And I feel like I know in many cases we were a refuge for the young women um, that that came to our clinic. And I know that in many cases, we were perhaps a choice that they, we were a resource after an assault. That was something that was really, I took that responsibility very seriously. And it was an incredible experience that informs a lot of my passion around healthcare, but also around wages. Uh, When I was managing that that Planned Parenthood, I was not making a living wage. And a lot of healthcare workers are working in the healthcare sector. They're being caregivers and they can barely take care of themselves. And so you have a lot of layers to um, the healthcare system that are problematic, but that are so necessary, we need to fix them. And that's why I'm a, a big proponent of Medicare for All, which Mike Quigley does not support. How do
0: you imagine implementing Medicare for All, and what would you do to cover reproductive rights?
1: The the bill that's on the, the House floor right now, H.R. 676, does contemplate um, repealing the Hyde Amendment, uh, which is something that uh, would allow for a full reproductive services under Medicare for all. Um, So that's the the, the plan that I'm supporting. Um, I have one of my, the clients that I worked with in my capacity as a commercial real estate uh, tenant representative is an organization called Physicians for a National Health Program. They've been a long time advocates of the single payer system um, and have helped to advocate for Medicare for all. And when I've looked at the data they've collected and the studies they've done, it's something that would save us anywhere from $400 to $600 billion. And a big part of that savings is right now, Medicare can't negotiate for drug prices. And this would uh, allow for that and save us anywhere from $100 to $200 billion. It's, it's one of those things where we have, that's the best system that we have, and, and expanding it is going to save us uh, billions of dollars, 31 cents of every dollar that we spend on healthcare is spent on administration. So on your website, you talk a lot about
0: electing women and people of color. Could you tell our listeners about why that's so important?
1: Yeah. And, and I am someone who has worked um, in a a lot of different organizations to mentor and encourage leadership from people of color and women. I had run a, a local chapter for South Asian women leaders, um, um, an Asian, Pan Asian leadership organization, and last May organized a 200 person forum on the very issue of electing women and people of color. We're, right now, we're confronted with a system that works for a few, and there's so, so many people who are not being um, accounted for. Um, and part part of it is because they aren't being represented. Um, having someone who um, is uh, a person of color doesn't necessarily guarantee that they have that perspective. Because, say, I wouldn't vote for Sarah Palin or Ben Carson, <laughs> but so it's it's not an, an automatic checkbox. But I think what we're, we're we're confronting right now is realizing, hey, in Illinois, for example, we don't have we have three women in the House, and that's sixteen point seven percent. That's we, we're tracking below the national average. By comparison, California has 30%. And clearly, we're still a long way off. We don't have parity uh, by any means. And that, to me, is, um, it is part of why we don't have representatives that are willing to really stick their necks out for issues that are, that don't affect them. The history of this seat, I alluded to earlier, there's never, uh, there's only been one Republican in the last hundred years. There's never been a woman in this seat. There's never been a person of color in this seat. This is the known, as uh, some of your listeners may have heard, the concept of the Chicago political machine. This is known as the machine seat in Congress. Everyone who's been in the seat for the last 30, 40, 50 years has come up through the political establishment that essentially was started by the original Mayor Daley and hews to that, that thinking of, you know, they'll sort of go as far as they need to but they don't necessarily have to go very far because they're protected by everyone else in the establishment. They're going to be supported by all the elected officials that are um, in terms of getting endorsed by the current elected officials. And they're going to get all the money from sort of the uh, you know, wealthy donors and corporations because they want to preserve the power that they have.
0: So what do you hope to do in Congress to change this system where money has
1: so much power in the elections? So I'm going to continue to refuse corporate PAC money. That's a a pledge um, that I've made. But I also want to push for um, what's um, a couple of other uh, Justice Democrats and I are pushing for um, a free and fair elections amendment. So we can eliminate the uh, influence of dark money. What we're finding for so many issues, whether it's net neutrality, gun control, the reason things aren't, major reforms aren't happening is because of money. And so to me, we need untainted voices at all levels of government. What our our democracy has been compromised for so many years, and because people are talking about. Our elections need to have integrity, which is incredibly important. We need to, to push and understand what happened in the 2016 election, but but we've been tainted for years because of because of money, and so pushing for um, changing that and also pushing for public campaign financing is the solution. As a person in a leadership position, what I also want to do is mentor and reach out to women and people of color who are not typically tapped to run. I've gone to several different organizations that I could rattle off names that your listeners would know. A lot of those organizations simply exist to convince women primarily to run, but they they don't necessarily have the nuts and bolts. This is who you should use. This is who you should talk to. Here's what you need to know. It tends to be very high level. And frankly, everyone's like, oh, did you go through training? Did you do this? Did you... You are, it's just like anything in life, if you don't go through the process and learn the sort of idiosyncrasies of your electoral system, the election board, and the systems that take place in your jurisdiction, it's very hard to say, like, here's a book, do it this way. People aren't going out of their way to give advice to people like me, because I'm doing something I'm not supposed to do. I'm not supposed to challenge an incumbent. Because we, you know, the people who are in power don't want to be challenged. And there's also this idea that, oh, he's a Democrat. He's fine. No, he's not. We can do better. So something interesting I found on your
0: website is that you founded a comedy group for women of color.
1: Yeah, so actually it was two different organizations. Um, Simmer Brown is a comedy collective They started with uh, Another Man of Color. And that was uh, a forum that we created where we had a regular show where we invited comics of all backgrounds, Latino, Black, LGBT. And we had a, a diverse show. Every single show was diverse. And we had, we drew an audience that wanted to hear smart political comedy. And we had a great run. Um, it was a great uh, environment to to be in as the 2016 election was ramping up because people felt like they could have a space where they could hear about, you know, criticizing what was happening in terms of Trump and, and all the sort of animus that you, you felt throughout the election. The separate organization I started that was strictly for people, women of color was something, as I was producing Simmer Brown, one of the things I noticed was it was very on, it was very rare for women of color to be reaching out to us and saying, Hey, I want to be on the show or seeing them at, at open mics throughout the city and what I realized was they, when they would go to an open mic, it was, and I used to host one, it was almost always cis straight white males. It's not a very particularly welcoming environment. And so I thought, well, how do I fix that? How do I create an environment or create a, a change in that? And so I, I found it, hand her the mic, which is a way to create a workshop and space for women of color. And it was an amazing experience. The first time we did it, we had women who signed up, and some of them had comedy experience, some of them didn't. But I I said to my my, uh, fellow teacher that day, and I said, "I, I wish we had taken before and after pictures, because people walked in looking sort of, you know, what they would normally look at on a February day in Chicago, and it was almost like they had a glow walking out. Because they all, even though they came in as... Latino, Black, um, and, uh, you know, Muslim women who uh, had very different perspectives. They came and they all felt like they understood, hey, people like me aren't typically on stage. Again, it all comes down to representation and feeling like when you see someone who looks like you, there's a possibility there. You say, I can do that. And so ha- being able to create that environment was really wonderful. And I was able to inspire a woman who then said, hey, could you come to my place of business? I work at a hospital. All the women I work with, they're so well-educated. They're women of color. They're not getting promoted. I think if they had something like this, they would just feel that much more confident. And so we did something actually at a major uh, hospital system here in Chicago. We did a workshop for women who, again, were, it, it wasn't necessarily comedy. It wasn't the skill set that the job required, but it was about confidence. How do I come to a meeting or a conversation feeling like I can advocate for myself? And that so much of it is just how you, how you communicate. All of these kind of come together, whether it's comedy, um, you know, training, the political environment, it's all about saying, we aren't, we aren't seeing ourselves. How do we change that? And how do we, how do we take it on ourselves and have agency and that's something that I, I feel like comedy really helped me um, reach out to a lot of different groups in the nonprofit and the arts communities, and it bridged a lot of, uh, communities. It was, it's been an incredible experience. And now that I'm in the political sphere, I feel like it's almost like it's all coming together. I, um, I say to everyone, I didn't really change my message, I just changed my forum. So lastly, how can folks get involved in your campaign? Yeah, so I can be found at saminaforcongress.com. That's S-A-M-E-E-N-A for congress.com. Elections on March 20th. So we need people to staff at uh, polling places, um, pass out literature, um, call voters, make sure they're you know coming out to vote, making a plan to vote. So all that would be helpful. So volunteering would be great. Um, of course, money always helps because that um, we do need to pay for physical mailers, um, you know, something that most folks that are our age or younger think, oh, well, why would I want to get a piece of mail? It's still something that m- much of the elect- electorate is looking for a physical piece of mail. And so things like that cost money. My last mailer cost me $23,000. That's a lot of money. And, you know, when your your average donation is 50 or $60, that's a lot of small donations <laughs> that have to add up. And so, um, if people feel inspired and want to um, see another progressive woman in office, we would love your support. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast today.
0: You've got a really interesting background, and I appreciated talking about it with you. Yeah, thanks so much, Jordan. Really appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, of course. Again, I'm Jordan Valerie, politics editor at Millennial Politics. You can find me on Twitter at Jordan Val Allen. If you enjoyed this conversation, make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media, subscribe to our newsletter, and check out our merch at millennialpolitics.co. And stay tuned for the next episode of our podcast. Thanks for listening.